G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. You might have your own thoughts on either being a sceptic or what sort of way you respond when you come across a conversation with someone who's a real sceptic to Christian faith. As you know, Australia is known to be a secular nation And it may be that being sceptical goes hand in hand with us becoming more secular. Even being secular isn't what it used to be. It once was just a way of describing how a nation balances lots of different cultural and religious backgrounds. But now it appears to have changed to its own form of religious expression. And perhaps reflecting where sceptics find a good place to practice their scepticism a whole lot more freely. Well, our special guest today has been focusing research into understanding our Aussie scepticism. He's been exploring the origins and development of Christian thoughts and the challenging mindsets that work against our Christian faith. Matthew Jacoby is an author, a musician, a theologian, and he's the pastor of One Hope Church in Geelong in Victoria, As a musician, he is the accomplished leader of Sons of Korah. He co-writes their music. He plays guitar and sings lead vocals. As a theologian, Dr. Matt Jacoby is a lecturer at the Melbourne School of Theology and our absolute privilege to have him back with us today. Matt, a special welcome back to 2020. It's great to be with you, Neil. Hey, Matt, we're in the deep end, I feel, today, and uh, for lots of listeners Mm. who will say quite proudly, I'm a sceptic, that Mm. may actually not necessarily be entirely a bad thing, because sometimes we think about uh, scepticism, and we think it's all bad, uh, and yet it might be Mm. a natural way that we actually grow in maturity. So uh, is (laughs) scepticism good or bad? Let me throw you into the deep end right at the start. I... I, I'm a natural skeptic, Neil. I, I um, you know, I think. It's okay, the really conversation's to... over. The guest is a skeptic. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm such a natural skeptic. I'm even surprised that I'm a Christian. I, like, it's it's been, uh, you know, um, th- there there is a there is a lot about the desire to really think through things rigorously that is really commendable. In fact. Uh, as a lecturer in philosophy, and I teach philosophy and, and subjects related to philosophy at the Melbourne School of Theology, you know, my my purpose there is to teach students to think rigorously. Um, but I also think it's important that we learn to think rigorously about our scepticism as well, <laughs> you know, and that we examine the assumptions actually that often lie uh, perhaps unarticulated, unspoken about our our scepticism. And that's what I often find in debates between religious believers and sceptics. I find that there are assumptions underneath the conversations that are uh, not acknowledged. 
and that are very, very problematic. And so that's where I've focused uh, a lot of my work and interest at that level. I remember reading a book about 30 years ago, so it's going back quite a way, and it was in defence of doubt. Uh, Mm. So when we're talking about scepticism... Uh, lots of us might think, well, am I a skeptic? Am I not a skeptic? Um, am I a doubter? Sometimes that sort of cuts through and says uh, doubt. Now, I used to think that doubt and faith were opposites. And, you know, you can't mm. be a doubter. You can't be doubting Thomas. You've got to be a faith-filled, yeah. uh, confessing believer. Until uh, I read this book and realized that actually doubt is a part of the process of becoming mature. So what are your mm. thoughts? Is, is doubt similar to skepticism? Uh, it depends, of course, what you mean. Uh, it, it, if, if, in, if by doubt you mean, you know, not, uh, you, it's not easy to sort of pull the wool over your eyes, um, uh, not intellectually naive, things like that. Uh, then I, you know, I think that a, a doubting mind can be uh, can be valuable, but there is also a problem with uh, with certain kinds of doubt when it comes to religious belief. And uh, I, I, let me let me have a go at at, uh, at explaining this, Neil, and, okay. and 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 we'll go uh, we'll go from there. the The problem is that in our culture we are kind of, we are so connected or, or even sort of addicted to a certain way of knowing um, that there, there is only certain kinds of knowledge that we're willing to accept as knowledge. And uh, it's been led by a wonderfully productive scientific revolution from the sort of 1600s onwards. Uh, and and we're, we're a very, uh, you know, science really is... Uh, tends to uh, set the parameters now for what we will accept as knowledge. You know, we say, well, uh, tangible knowledge, uh, knowledge of tangible things in the, we would say in the real world, well, that's real knowledge. And any, you know, any, um, any talk about ultimate values or ultimate meaning or God or a spiritual realm, well, we would say that's all just faith, right? Um, now, uh, I would argue that faith is a kind of knowledge, uh, but we can we can get back to that. But the initial problem there, Neil, is that, is that we've narrowed knowledge down to what we would call the technical term is empirical knowledge, so knowledge of, again, through the senses. And we're basically saying there's no other knowledge apart from that kind of knowledge. And uh, everything else... So it's it's almost uh, that what we've done in our culture is that we have neglected uh, an other ways of knowing. And it's a little bit like if, you know, if I stop using one arm completely and I put it in plaster for a couple of years, the muscles will atrophy and I won't be able to use that arm anymore. And I think what has tended to happen in our culture is that we've atrophied a way of knowing um, that is a legitimate way of knowing that uh, just because it's not about tangible things, because remember, value, you, you know, God is not a tangible object. 
uh, <laughs> uh, and and so th there's a different way of knowing that is appropriate to spiritual things and certainly to God. And so um, that's really the problem. It's it's that there's this very narrow definition of what counts as true knowledge, which actually has caused to atrophy that other other what I would refer to as spiritual ways of knowing. Um, and that's where doubt becomes a problem. If 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 our skepticism is the result of an atrophied sort of knowledge muscle, to put it that way, then it becomes a problem. And I find actually even for a lot of Christians are still dealing with a knowledge muscle that is largely atrophied because of our culture, because we're not taught to recognize that as real knowledge. So those muscles are not so strong in the way that our culture looks today. Let me ask you about what happens in the classroom, because uh, there you mm. are, the lecturer up at the front, and you've got a bunch of students in a cohort, and they're studying these philosophical things. And sometimes people say uh, it's a risky thing when you're actually doing a little deeper study into this, because even as you quipped and uh, we had a bit of a laugh at the beginning of our conversation, you said, well, I'm mm. a skeptic. Because when you've got those students in your classroom, you're <laughs> encouraging them all to be skeptics. You're encouraging them all yep. to say, uh, let's just uh, break some things down here and start to build in some of those foundations that will actually mm. make us people of faith. You're encouraging them to, uh, uh, to understand uh, this exclusive humanism way, uh, the empirical way of being able to understand the way the world the world thinks, but then growing into a way to understand what happens when there's something more objective in there, like the presence of God in the equation. So you've got this secular humanist way of thinking about things, and you've got how you actually add in there this spiritual dimension. So if mm. you're talking about skepticism, somehow or other you start on one side and you've got to introduce God into there. When you're in the classroom, how hard is that? <laughs> well, I'm... Um, if I'm encouraging people to be skeptics, uh, <laughs> I, I think, well, I think I would say I'm encouraging people to think rigorously, including about their skepticism, including uh, about their doubt. So um, it, it, at the risk of sounding a little esoteric, Neil, <laughs> I would say that I'm encouraging skeptics to be skeptical about their skepticism. Um because there's a there's even a deeper problem with uh, with that. Look, um, so empirical knowing or, or or knowing tangible objects, which is pretty which is the name of the game in in what we in the scientific method, um, which is wonderful and uh, and and all power to our brothers and sisters who are involved uh, in science, but. Um, one of the problems, and this has been a strong theme throughout philosophy, and, and I'm going to attempt to explain this really simply, uh, Neil. So no, don't panic, any listeners. Right. Uh, but this really is a big uh, is a big theme in philosophy, and it is the problem of dividing a world into knowers, subjects, and objects. When the world just becomes a world of objects, and uh, and we have to somehow set ourselves off from the world in order to sort of examine existence from, as it were, from the outside, 
you know. And um, and this is there's a problem with this because we're not on the outside. And so to talk about the meaning of life and and God and one of the problems is when we treat that as like an intellectual object that we set ourselves off from and we sort of examine it as though we could somehow grasp uh, these things intellectually when actually we're we're on the inside of these things. I mean, you, you can't. We can't grasp the things of God. We can be grasped by God. In fact, we are, in a very significant sense, in God's grasp. But we cannot, we're not on the outside, um, you know, of existence and able to sort of look in from the outside. It's There's a kind of God complex, I guess, what I'm saying. And, and, uh, and you know, um, philosophers like, and initially the philosopher that I did my doctoral work on, Søren Kierkegaard, he looked at modern philosophy so far and said, you guys, you're playing God. This is a problem. You're playing God. You think you can stand outside existence and probe existence intellectually as though you yourselves were on the outside of it. And so he didn't diagnose a problem with doubt in that sense. What do you think about Aussies and our current scepticism? Because... It does appear to be, you know, if you look at things like mm. census details and uh, people who are all of a sudden they're becoming nuns, uh, they're opting to tick the box that says no religion. In other words, it's almost yeah. like I'm proudly ticking this box just to let you know that I'm a bit more sceptical. And in this modern age, I feel like I know a whole lot more than they knew in generations gone by. Any yeah. thoughts here on Aussies and the fact that we appear to be even more sceptical and not just outside the church, but even within the church too? Uh, the census question is, is is a good one because on, on some readings, what the census measures is a decline of Christendom, not Christ, Christianity. This is an argument that, for example, Rodney Stark, uh, the sociologist and historian Rodney Stark makes um, in his book, The Triumph of Christianity. Um, uh, and the triumph of faith as well. Uh, he he basically says that census that that kind of census data actually, you know, um, doesn't it it measures a sort of cultural phenomenon more than a uh, you know more than sort of the numbers of believers. Anyway, but I, I do think um, I do think part of that is the result of this uh, process of atrophy. Of a way of knowing the more and if we want to talk culturally the more that we expel the spiritual spiritual things talk of sacred things and ultimate meaning and and uh you know and sp- anything to do with god or spirituality uh that the more we expel that out of mainstream discussion the more we um i you know cut that off out of our lives the more that these spiritual ways of knowing actually atrophy, and and I so I I understand that increasingly that leads um, people to not really recognise certain things as knowledge. There's a there's a there's a classic scene Neil in the the book 1984. In in I'm not sure if you're familiar. And some of our leaders might be familiar yep. Yep. with this book, where they're they're in this ironically named Ministry of Truth, and they're trying to control. They they come up with a way of trying to control the way that people think, 
and they come up with this plan. They said, what we're going to do is we're going to narrow language down. We're going to make certain words and certain terms illegal so that they stop getting used, right? And if we can narrow language down to a narrow enough field, then we can actually stop people from thinking things that we don't want them to think. Now, at the risk of sounding conspiratorial, I don't think there's a necessary, I think this is just a cultural phenomenon. We've narrowed what we, you know, we've narrowed um, our experience down, we've narrowed our understanding of what we recognize as knowledge down to just tangible knowledge. So you have a lot of people that say, well, if God is real, why doesn't he just do something or, or you know, why can't I just see something? Or even if people say, you know, if God is real, why doesn't he prove himself to me? Now, but when you dig into what they will accept of pr uh, as proof, it's essentially, well, tangible proof, of course. Like, okay. But see, the problem is, is God is not a tangible object. And the demand of skepticism in that sense is kind of rigged because it's saying, unless God is a tangible object or even a tangible intellectual object that I can grasp or, or access somehow with my senses or with my mind, then I'm not willing to believe. But that's essentially asking God to be demanding that God become something less than God is so that I can know him in the way that I want to know things. Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson, a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Well, 1-800-316-316 and your opportunity today to say something to contribute to our conversation, whether it's a question, a comment or even a critique around the issue of scepticism. Do you find that you're in conversations with people who say, I'm a skeptic or, uh, you know, you might have heard of a skeptics society of people who just uh, want to uh, beat up on people who have a religious faith, people who want to argue that there is only one objectivity, that of our exclusive uh, human uh, objectivity. Well, Matthew Jacoby is our guest, 1-800-316-316. Matt, there's one particular philosopher. His name is Charles Taylor, and uh, he's still alive, so it's not uh, like we're talking about someone 500 years ago, but he does reflect on things of 500 mm. years ago. And he talks mm. about the way that we've become more secularized uh, by mm. talking about enchantment and disenchantment. And, uh, you know, a little bit like uh, the magic castle idea, you know, uh, there's a magical world out there. And, of course, that we might think of in a fictional sense. Uh, we think of the Disney castle. But, of course, he's talking about enchantment by way of people understanding spirituality. Any mm. thoughts here as you reflect on, you know, the journey over 500 years of uh, our way of developing this sort of secularized and, uh, you know, the soil for skepticism that we have these days? <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a fascinating um, journey that he goes on in in his book, A Secular Age. Uh, Charles Taylor. It's it's not the most accessible work, but it's it's been one of the most interesting uh, things I think I've ever read. <laughs> um, and you know, he points out that 500 years ago, it would never have occurred to anyone to even question. Uh, the existence of a spiritual world uh, of, the, of God or, or gods or um, that that was a matter of immediate, you know, immediate intuition. And yet um, what he wants to discover uh, is how over the last 500 years that has that has changed. And, and so there's a um, 
there's a sort of historical approach that that he you know that he takes to that and and i think it's it's a really interesting interesting point um and he talks about us moving from and this is one of the more some of the one of the most interesting elements of his uh, of his analysis is that he talks about um a poorer state of existence, like a spiritually poorer state of existence, where, you know, there, there was a time when we didn't really make the distinction between natural and supernatural. The, 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 the natural was always supernatural, you know, <laughs> and, um, and, and then, and so we had this kind of porous relationship to our, um, uh, to our environment, even spiritually. And, and, and then, you know, we moved to what he refers to as a buffered relationship uh with with our world you know with and 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 he and that's a little bit like what i was saying before how we sort of set out we kind of stand back from reality and think we can look um back in on it but it's interesting that when um whereas previously you had this view of the world that was a very spiritual you know it, it the 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 natural was seen as supernatural and uh and and there wasn't that sharp division but then we we started to, from sort of the time of Newton onwards, th this idea of the universe just as a big inanimate machine. It's just a machine. It's just stuff. It's like cogs and wheels turning. And and you ended up with this sort of reductionist, this physicalist kind of approach to to reality. And you know, and and what happens there is that God becomes the guy that made the machine. And every now and again, he pops in to make some you know, to make some repairs to the machine or perhaps to, you know, uh, fill a gap somewhere. That's the God of the gaps. Kind of, and, and, and you know, that's actually known as deism. It's interesting, Neil, you know, I would say in my experience as a pastor, a lot of what Christians believe about God now actually resembles that kind of deism, that the God who created the machine who sits on the outside and every now and again, he sort of pops in to make some repairs. But actually the original, uh, the original, Christian and biblical view is that the natural is completely supernatural at every level. Like we are actually in the midst of an unfolding miracle. It's life. It's the universe. It's everything. And and um, and and God is imminently present all the time, and everything's creating and sustaining. That's the Christian view, um, and and that's the biblical view. And I I, I find that. Uh, the the god of the skeptics, people like you know the new atheists in the in the 2010s, what they were really um, targeting in their skepticism was really the deistic god, the god of the machine. Uh, that's and 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 I I read those works thinking, well, I'm not sure if I believe in that god. That's not the god uh, that I believe in. You know, um, and and unfortunately, it is actually the way that even a lot of Christians see uh, God today. And there might be listeners who want to Google uh, what that word deism actually is mm. all about because I have uh, heard and read some things about those things as well, that our faith in God today has become even a more deistic faith. Uh, the mm. thought that somehow or other he's not interested in me personally, he's just interested yeah. in, you know, as they used to say, there's the grand clockmaker who winds up the clock and lets yeah. it all go. But uh, but no, God is intimately interested in a personal uh, presence and uh, personally being known by each of us. Interestingly, the way that our Christian thought has developed and our Christian theology, and we reflect back to the Bible, Matt, 
Um, mm. Where's this spirituality being nurtured in us from? Because, you know, when we say pray and read the Bible and share your mm. faith, I mean, these are some of the, the essentials of what we do. That actually brings some life to the machine, doesn't it? Uh, so that we're actually, we've got some heart in the mm. the life that we live. Any thoughts here? Yeah, well, I mean, the interesting thing is now, I mean, since the beginning of the 20th century, we know it's not just a machine. I mean, it's like that mechanistic view of reality has completely been uh, eclipsed uh, since sort of Einsteinian science and, and, you know, quantum field theory and all of that, which is a big rabbit hole, which we won't go into. But, you know, the the whole thing looks uh, much more mystical, actually. And it's interesting um, that there has been a, a, there's a, a book um, that came out, I think it's in 2016 from Oxford University Press called The Waning of Materialism. And it, it charts, It's, a, it's a, there's also a, a YouTube lecture, uh, the, at one of the editors of that book, uh, explains why a lot of philosophers are actually turning against that old materialist uh, sort of view. Um, so, so that's certainly changed. But to get back to what you were saying, uh, Neil, is that a lot of those practices, and this is the importance of practices of prayer and worship and so forth, is that they are exercising a different way of knowing. Right? That's essentially, it's it's exercising that muscle that's been atrophied, and um, and it's rather than in in that. Um, buffered what Charles Taylor refers as that buffered way of knowing, uh, you know, withdrawing back and, and trying to view the things of God and as as conceptual or, or tangible objects, we actually uh, make a decision to connect relationally, uh, to acknowledge God, to recognize that um, it's, it, and it's more than even just the God is personally interested. It's actually that even the very consciousness that we have the very life that animates us is a um, actually flows from God. I mean, it, you know, our con- our very consciousness is already a participation uh, in in God. Um, the the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, says that uh, God is the fountain of all being. So uh, even our very being is already a participation in God. So we're actually the, the the truth is we are actually all always experiencing God all the time. It's just so constant that we we tend not to recognize it and add to that the fact that we've, you know, we've in a sense taught ourselves in our culture not to recognize it as such. We've just said, well, it's just all inanimate stuff, which is even a lot of philosophers now are turning against that view. Just in case, there are some who think I'm wearing a badge of skepticism very proudly and no one will ever change me on that mat. Uh, it's just the way I am. It's the way I will always be. I'll be proud to be this. There's actually a big downside to being a sceptic. Mm. I wonder if you've got some thoughts here. Yeah. Well, to be a consistent sceptic, uh, actually, um, I find a lot of sceptics still hold on to uh, fragments, sort of the ghost, as some philosophers have put it, the ghost of uh, of the things that they've rejected, um, so still holding on to a sense of a meaning to life, of moral values, of things that actually I don't think, in in their genuine and original sense, you can really hold to those things. If you truly, if you narrow reality down, just to uh, physical 
reality and it's just material stuff and it all just uh, unfolded um, by chance, uh, then uh, I think it leads to a sad position of something ultimately fairly meaningless. Fairly meaningless. Now, of course, there you know there there are philosophers that would disagree and talk about there being a mean you know a meaning to life. In fact, uh, there's a book by Michael Ruse, a skeptic to that you know uh, to that of that title that you know where he sort of argues that there is a meaning to life, that we're the top of the evolutionary tree and we need to keep the evolutionary wheel turning. And, and um, you know, but I, I think uh, other even atheistic uh, philosophers, I think, have made a much stronger case that actually if you are going to be a consistent sceptic, you have to abandon all talk of ultimate meaning. You can you can talk of some some sense of meaning, but it's not really a genuine sense of meaning. You need to abandon all talk of ultimate values or um, morality in the sense that we have before to be really consistent. Um, the South African philosopher David Banatar is one that um, you know, says that you just cannot talk about life having a meaning. We need to face the fact, and 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 he says, you know, his call is that we all need to face the fact that life has no meaning, and we need to stop looking for meaning. And we just, you know, uh, that it's a it's a tough dog eat dog world, and um, uh, you know, and it's a very very, unf- you know, it's it's a. It's consistent, but it's very pessimistic, Neil, um, because we are actually wired. Uh, we are wired for a sense of the transcendent, for a sense of ultimate meaning. This is uh, even uh, a sceptical uh, um, psychologist, social psychologist, Jonathan Haidt, Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, in his book, The Happiness Hypothesis, he points out that research has showed that we actually are wired for spirituality. We're wired for a sense of ultimate meaning, for morality, uh, you know, and th- this is important for our well-being. The bad news for the sceptic is if you remain in your scepticism, and if that's something you think, uh, I'm proud to be a sceptic, the likelihood is uh, you've got a problem with hope. And in fact, if you have no reason for hope, you're going to live in a place of hopelessness. And so mm. when you say pessimism, you're going to be pessimistic about the outlook of everything. Uh, you're going to be in despair because nothing will hold the sort of hope and meaning that you require to actually live a life which is uh, purposeful and you might even say happy. Uh, there's a challenge there and uh, to not let yourself be in that scepticism uh, too long. Uh, you know, you might venture into that and uh, you might have your own thoughts about what you can be sceptical about, but to emerge from that back into a place uh, which is filled with hope and which is filled with purpose, that is a place where Christians are mm. because we have an understanding of this wonderful transcendent God. There is something above all of the mm. challenges that we face down here below. Taking calls yeah. on one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. There's some listeners waiting patiently. Let's take a call. Wendy is in Casino mm-hmm. in New South Wales. Hi, Wendy. Welcome. Thank you. Wendy, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, I, I love the loving the conversation. I, I agree entirely with Matthew Jacoby that it is good to have a healthy sense of scepticism because my story goes that when I was at uni, um, after being many years as a Sunday school teacher, 
I got to uni first year university, I was doing philosophy one. And within three weeks, I'd become an atheist um, because I hadn't really learned how to defend my faith. And I hadn't really gone into the depths of my faith earlier. I just knew Bible stories. And um, then I spent the next 10 years searching for truth because I was still a skeptic, but I wanted to find the truth nonetheless. And eventually, after all the different avenues of new age and, and, you know, so many things out there for people that are searching, anything but Jesus I was interested in. And eventually, I, 10 years later, thank God, I found Jesus or he found me. Um, and it really did, what it did for me, though, was, I can take on any skeptic now because I do know how they think and I understand what goes through their minds and what they're searching for. And they're the ones that I actually pray for the most because I was like that once. And, you know, I still consider myself a skeptic. I don't take anything without checking it out, without researching. Um, And that's one of the things I just want to say I love the, the idea of being a Christian skeptic because you will eventually get to the truth and the truth of course as we know is Jesus Wonderful insights Wendy. Uh, Matt your thoughts for Wendy? Yeah and, and of course it goes back to what we were saying before Neil that we to be a true skeptic you need to be skeptical even about your own doubts you know and, and the uh, a skeptical about uh, what you know what we will accept as knowledge and, and our, our whole uh, I guess the whole framework uh, of, you know, what we think knowledge is and all, all of that, they're the deeper questions, I think, that call um, religious scepticism into doubt because when you really, it, I don't I don't think it stands up to rigorous scepticism because it's too narrow. It's too, it narrows reality down just to tangible reality. And who says that na- reality can be narrowed down that much? And so con- I think a consistent uh, a healthy scepticism um, can uh, actually end up uh, uncovering the um, the ways in which uh, unbelief is pretty rigged. Uh, you know, unbelief in a spiritual realm is actually pretty rigged and, and fairly narrow-minded. Wendy, wonderful insight. Thank you so much for calling through. Let's take another call. Lawrence is in Perth in WA. Lawrence, welcome along. Oh, thank you for today's session. Not sure if it's on topic, but what's going on with governments legislating to favour particular theories in society rather than letting society evolve to, to its new settings? Uh, serious laws are surfacing to criminalise those who hold traditional views. Not sure if I get into trouble for mentioning it on air, but the gender fluidity issue um, that's coming through in um, some, some states of Australia. No, that's that's perfectly fine to uh, to raise that. Um, but you know, picking up on what you're saying here, Lawrence, and uh, to get Matt's thoughts here, you know, uh, evil becomes good and good becomes evil. We're in a state yeah, of flux right, right yeah. now, uh, where we used to have some yeah. things that were anchored in the you know divine transcendence. Those sorts of values where God has spoke by spoken by revelation, we're brushing those things aside in our scepticism, in our secularised uh, world. What are your thoughts here for for Lawrence, Matt? Yeah, it's it's a complicated situation that we're in now in our secular society because you know we've rejected the basis for a lot of the values that we traditionally held to and you know we now need to come up with a set of values without really any 
transcendent frame and 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 so it's it's you know it's complicated i i would say though that an important distinction is the distinction between what i believe is right and wrong and then what i believe should be legal and illegal so there are some things that i believe are right i think everyone i think everyone should believe in god and and give their lives to god but i don't think it should be illegal not to give your life to god you know what i mean uh, so there are lots of things that i think are are wrong uh, that shouldn't necessarily be illegal as such. So, so the question of um, of policy and um, perhaps spiritual values, you know, while while they, you know, um, while they of course are related, it's worth separating those things in our minds because not everything that we th sometimes it's better to let people do the wrong thing. Now, obviously, there are not lots of ways in which I would want to qualify that, um, but. But, you know, there are plenty of things that we think are right and wrong that we don't necessarily think should be illegal and uh, and legal or illegal. So, you know, I mean, where we draw the line there, of course, is a question of debate, but it's worth making that distinction. But, yes, it's a complicated question that we're not going to solve it today, Neil. Hey, Lawrence, did you have something more to add at all? Oh, no, those couple of comments about it's illegal to give your life to God in some sense and the other one about give people uh, freedom to give their, uh, their thoughts towards God. Yeah, that's a good one. Lawrence, thank you so much for your call. Our talkback line is open, 1-800-316-316. Matt, you had some thoughts on overthinking people, mm. um, overthinking things, because, you know, we get into a conversation like this and uh, some people listening in might not have realised that there's a depth that you can really get into talking about scepticism and mm. the way we've become very secularised. Uh, if you yeah. are a sceptic uh, in the shallow end, you want to avoid getting to be the sceptic in the really deep end, but what are your thinking, what's your thinking about overthinking? Well... As a chronic overthinker, Neil, <laughs> I feel like I want to start uh, an organisation, Overthinkers Anonymous. You know, I, I it's, you know, um, and this is something that I've, I've, you know, faced as as a pastor. A lot of people struggling with questions of faith. Often the problem is, is they're trying to think their way into the truth. They 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 won't accept it until they can grasp. Uh, that they can grasp it or it makes sense to them. But it makes sense that there are some things that will never make sense. Uh, when we're talking about things of God and spirituality, um, we're talking about things that are even outside of sort of space-time logic. I mean, you know, it's um, it's now, now it doesn't mean that, and, and as I've said, I think it's important to think through things rationally, but um, as uh, I think it, it was uh, Blaise Pascal that said, reason's last step is to acknowledge that there are an infinite number of things beyond it. And uh, and, and we, we acknowledge that. You just, so, so th there's a problem if we think we can think our way into truth and sort of circling uh, spiritual things and waiting till it makes sense um, is really not the way that there, again, that's trying to, that's that sort of addiction or, or that, that um, I guess, being tied to that one way of knowing which is sort of rational or empirical, but actually what about uh, there, there is a way of knowing that requires relational engagement uh, that, uh, you know, that we would refer to as faith. Faith is not 
a cheap substitute for knowledge. Faith is a kind of knowing. It's a relational knowing. It's saying that I need to step into this in order to know this. There's certain things that you can't know except from the inside. You can't really know what love is unless you love. Uh, you can analyze it scientifically and be very objective and all that sort of, but the, at the end of the day, you have to love to know what love is. And it's the same with the things of God and spirituality. It's You, you can't just sort of... Um, uh, you know, trot around the outside and wait till it makes sense uh, in order to accept it because you're never really going to get it that way. I wonder if that person who is, say, in church on a Sunday and, uh, you know, uh, Pastor Matt Jacoby is speaking and at the end of a really wonderful and deep, powerful message where you've explained the gospel and you say, uh, is there anyone here that would like to explore this more? Uh, is something happening in your heart right now? Uh, could you uh, jump across that line and put your faith in Jesus? When someone comes forward at the altar call and they're going to be praying through a prayer and they're going to be submitting themselves to God, you mm. don't leave all of your skepticism behind in that moment. But what you do add to your skepticism perhaps is belief and the expression to God that I'm open to you taking me in a different direction. What do you think mm. about you know people who actually are so mm. standoffish, they're so proud of their skepticism, they're rejecting the thought of even coming to Christ. But what do you think happens when that belief is born in the heart, Matt? Uh, this well, is something yeah. that actually, <laughs> yes, your thoughts. That's right. So essentially what is awakened there is the beginning, the seed, that seed of faith is essentially the seed of a different way of knowing. It's, it's, a, it's a spiritual perception. And it, it, it is then something that we need to exercise and, and, um, and we need to lean into that. And this is why we, um, we engage in prayer and worship and because we're looking to sensitize uh, resensitize a way of knowing uh, from what perhaps the Bible refers to as the heart, not at the exclusion of the intellect, um, uh, the, the idea of the heart in both testaments of the Bible is used in a way that includes the intellect, or but it's very much a, a heart or spiritual way of knowing. Essentially what we do is that we look to resensitize and open up that, that new way of knowing. Uh, and that's a journey. That's a journey. And there'll still be, you know, there'll still be skepticism. There'll still be doubts in the midst of that because we're so used to, um, we're so used to only recognizing uh, a certain kind of knowledge. And so it can be a struggle. But, um, you know, if we, if we keep going in, and leaning on that seed of faith and looking to develop that seed of faith, uh, then a new reality, a vast and beautiful reality uh, will open up to us, uh, ultimately a reality that includes a God who loves us and has a purpose for us, a God who came and, and uh, in Jesus Christ and, and reconciled us to himself. That reality will open up to us and it will make sense not because it's logical or because we can access it you know, tangibly or but because we know it through faith. I'm reminded of that scripture, wide is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is that pathway that leads to life. And in some sense here, Matt, we're all being swept along 
by mm. a prevailing scepticism <clears throat> in our Australian society, um, the way we think about the big narrative that's being presented by our governments and by the media, mm. and somehow or other you've got to be countercultural, haven't you? You've got to go mm. against that flow. You've got to step out of that big, <laughs> uh, that highway, and you've got to step onto that narrow path. And it might be a tough road for you initially, but somehow mm. or other that seed of faith you're talking about has to lead us to some sort of decision. But to be able to connect with God and his divine plan and his divine purpose for our lives. Hey, you know what? We've mm. run out of time. Uh, I think we should have <laughs> another conversation similar to this on another day. We might have to make a plan like that. But, Matt, uh, just wonderful getting your insights. And for people who want to take this deeper, I'm sure they could do with an enrollment or two more at the Melbourne School of Theology, <laughs> and you could be sitting in the classroom with Dr. Matt Jacoby. I'm sure that's a possibility because, Matt, you're, uh, you're teaching philosophy Christian apologetics, Christian worldview, Christian ethics, faith and the arts, and uh, introductory preaching as well. So no doubt yeah. uh, there might be some inquiries at the Melbourne School of Theology. How do I get into Matt Jacoby's class? Hey, huh. there's um, also uh, there's also Neil a uh, a podcast that I do that discusses these things called Thrive Perspectives. Uh, Thrive Perspectives podcast. You can get it on any whatever platform, and it's wonderful deep discussions on all these very things. And last time we were talking, we were talking about your latest book called Deeper Places: The Spirituality mm. of the Psalms. So for those who are being skeptical and uh, being very you know exclusive humanist, you really take people into an exploration of the mm. beauty of being able to engage with God on a level that we might never have dreamed. And it's there, right in the book of Psalms, in the Bible that we're reading oftentimes uh, every day. Uh, there's also the sonsofcora.com website, and no doubt listeners can get a hold of some of the latest music that you've been producing, and you've been doing this for decades, and for listeners sure to get into a really deeper, wonderful spirituality of the sort of music that comes from Sons of Cora, sonsofcora.com. Uh, wonderful getting your thoughts, your insights today, Matt, and I've just got a Sons of Cora song ready to take us out. It's just a short one. Uh, it's called Psalm 123, I Lift Up My Eyes. I hope this is appropriate for uh, the end of a conversation like this. But, Matt, thank you so much for a great conversation today and uh, for being with us on 2020. Thanks, Neil. Thanks for having me.
gaze up in heaven as the eyes of a maiden look to the hand of the mistress. So our eyes they look to It's musician, pastor, Dr. Matt Jacoby, and, of course, Sons of Cora. Uh, It was a great conversation we had with Matt, and we'll make that available on a podcast a little later on this afternoon. It is into the deep end a little, but uh, it might be one of those you might want to listen to again. We'll have that on a podcast a little later on this afternoon. And, of course, it's an area that I love to talk about, too, uh, when we talk about skeptics and secularization. And uh, for some listeners, you might recall I released a book last year called Public Christians in a Secular Age. And uh, it's available online and certainly at the Vision Store if you wanted to get a hold of that, uh, Public Christians in a Secular Age. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.